0: I'm going to start by reading from uh, Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe, and all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon." They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. The word of God for the people of God. Pray with me. God, thank you for your scripture. Thank you for the, your word as we, as we explore the scripture today. I pray that as we sing that the spirit would, would blow the embers of our hearts, that our hearts too would burn within us. Uh, open our hearts, open our minds. Um, may we leave here encouraged and with hope today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, for those of you that don't know me, my name's Jeremiah. Um, I've been, I'm have been part of the steering group here at uh, at Oak, and it's been my wife and three kids. My wife is in the nursery, and, and all of our kids are over there now. Uh, we've been here going on uh, I think it's gonna be two years this summer. And sometimes I'm still finding the words to uh, describe what we love about Oak. And it was nice hearing the, you know, the graduates up here talk about their experiences. And uh, I think t- what Taylor said, she mentioned the slow rhythms of the church. I really, really resonates with me. Uh, one of my, I have a, a friend in Chicago who dubbed me his slow friend. So I have this reputation for being slow and you have to ask him what he means by that. Um, but I resonate with slow rhythms and uh, I imagine some of you do too. Uh, and I'm grateful, thankful to Chris for the opportunity to speak today while, those, while he and some others were up in D.C. Uh, with the Ecclesian network and rubbing elbows with the likes of N.T. Wright. I was here sweating and slaving over, over this message. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, I, I would let you know that my most of my teaching experience has been to middle and high school students. It's been a long time since I've actually taught, so in my head, I'm just like they're just most of them are students still. May not be middle and high school, but um, I'm grateful for the opportunity today. From the scripture, I want to talk about expectations uh, when what happens when things don't go as we expected and how we tend to go about interpreting those things. Um, I imagine we, we all have expectations. I don't know what yours are. I'm sure you have some, and, and stories of expectations unfulfilled, or perhaps fulfilled in unexpected ways. Uh, and we could easily fill up an entire day of like just us recounting those stories in our lives. Um, but before, you know, before we get into, into some of the expectations, I want to look at the text. I'm very spatially minded. I like to know when and where we're at, like not just in life, but in the scripture too. So I, I want to remind us that in this scripture, uh, it says that same day. So we're still on Easter Sunday. It's still Resurrection Sunday. We know this because uh, it was reported earlier that Jesus' tomb was empty uh, it was reported by the women who had visited earlier. And Luke made a point to let us know that in the, in the scripture preceding this, that their report was met with disbelief and labeled as nonsense. And although apparently Peter thought it worthy to go verify for himself, uh, I'm sure there's like a whole sermon's worth of material just in the fact that they didn't believe the women, they had to go verify themselves. But we'll save that one for another day. Um, and also, uh, they, so these guys are leaving Jerusalem. They're going to Emmaus, which is seven miles. And if you're like me and you like references, seven miles is roughly the distance from, from downtown to South Point along the Tobacco Trail. So it's not a short journey. I would depend on their pace. It's at least a couple of hours. I don't know when Jesus joined them on that journey. But if you can, I mean, I would love to have been on that journey just to experience Jesus unpacking scripture for a couple of hours, you know, as we walked. Um, so that's where we are. It's still Easter Sunday. Jesus has joined Cleopas and his friend, and, um, and they're in this state of, of disbelief. So an important expectation to understand in this text is what first century Jews expected in the coming Messiah. There were different expectations, but probably the most, most popular was focused on a Davidic redeemer, someone in the line of David endowed with political and military power, a warrior king, so to speak, um, others speculated of a priestly and prophetic messiah, um, and surely Cleopas and his friend had these same expectations. They were looking for this warrior king, someone who would come in with political and military power and redeem Israel. They say it themselves you know we had hoped this would be he would be here to redeem Israel but something is apparently gone wrong in their minds uh, there's there's a missing piece to the puzzle and they're trying to figure this out and as we see from the scripture what needs explaining is that the path to this uh, like the glory of Jesus life um, lied in the crucifixion Jesus taught them, you know, exposed the scripture in order to make clear that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory. And despite his teaching on several occasions, he tried to prepare the the disciples for this along the way. You know, first to, on the Mount of Transfiguration, he says, right after Peter declares, like, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. Jesus says, yes, and the Christ must suffer and die. So he tells them that. And there's another time at the, uh, I think it was at the Last Supper, before he broke the bread, he's saying, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suffer and die. He's telling them, he's giving them a heads up, but apparently it's not sinking in. Um, so what was not part of their expectation of the Messiah, uh, what did not fit their messianic imagination is that the coming Messiah should suffer. That was apparently unconscionable. They had all these expectations that went unmet and, and that fills them with confusion and doubt. And I'm sure we can all relate to that. Jesus did not fulfill nationalistic hopes, apocalyptic dreams, or holy commonwealth aspirations. Just a, a, a really brief story about expectations unfulfilled. It's a fun, light story. Um, my son, William, who was, he was in here, he's at Galilee play now for almost two months. He's been saving up money to buy a particular toy that he wants. I took him to target one day and he saw a toy and he was, he really wanted it. I was like, well, buddy, we don't have the money to buy that. Like you're going to have to wait. You're going to have to save. And so he's, uh, he, you know, he got some money for, um, for, I think he got some for Easter or n- different holidays, but he's slowly been accumulating money. He even did some chores for his, for his grandpa and like made some more money, so I finally got enough money. And Saturday's the day. We, he's like, I want to go to, no, it's Friday evening. Friday evening is, is the day. We're going to go to the store. We're going to get the toy. It's at Target. I looked online. They have two in the store. So we go, and I have all three kids. So I've got William, who's the oldest. He's four. And then Rebecca and Avery, two and almost one. So I have my hands full. And uh, so we start looking, but the toy, this toy we've been dreaming of, we've been expecting, we've been saving for, is nowhere to be found. But the website said there were two, it's not there. And uh, managing a two and a one year old at the same time, I don't have the presence of mind to sit and talk to them and say, William, like you really want this, we can wait, we can maybe go to another store, we can look and try to find it online. Um, I didn't have the presence of mind to do that. He's like, "Okay, I'll, f- I'll find something else," and so he finds this other lesser toy that he decides he wants. It's not nearly as much money, and so so we end up we, we buy it and we go home. So I feel like it's kind of like uh, uh, Esau selling his birthright for for a bowl of soup. It's not, um, <clears throat> it's just not the same. He settled. He settled, and we get home, and and Christina, the voice of reason, she's like. He really wanted that toy. I'm not sure he wants this. So we have a few conversations with him. and say, William, is this what you wanted? He's like, yeah, like I want this garbage truck that I bought. And uh, and so we're like, okay. Well, we went back and forth like, are you sure? So he wants it. So finally I unbox it. I give it to him. He goes to play. So we're getting dinner ready. And finally he walks back in, probably not after 10 minutes, holding it with his head down, sad, almost in tears. He goes, mommy daddy you're right i really want the air patroller his paw patrol air patroller i didn't want this and it was it was so sweet and but he had this moment that he you know he didn't his expectations weren't met and then he had this moment where he realized that and um so what we decided i gingerly repackaged it back into the box and I think we'll be able to return it. It's, I think it's, it's fair. I don't think I'm doing anything underhanded and Christina got online with him said, look, we can order one and said they ordered one. But now he's in this in between state, like he knows it's coming, but it's not here yet. And Christina was like, it's supposed to be here on Thursday. That's four school days. You got to wait four school days. You'll be here. And even yesterday he said, like, Daddy, do we have school tomorrow? I was like, no, we don't have school tomorrow. We go to church tomorrow. He's like, oh, like, like it's really, really hard <laughs> waiting. And it is. So he's like suffering his own period while he's waiting for this expectation to be fulfilled. Um, now, surely our stories are not always so lighthearted and funny. I imagine if I turn the mic to you guys to share stories, uh, some of your stories of unmet expectations. Or expectations filled in, in unexpected ways would be comedy gold, but I'm sure others would be incredibly heavy and heart-wrenching. And I imagine some of you are in those now. Some of you have come through those, and some of you, they're there, there yet to come. But the unexpected on Resurrection Sunday for Cleopas and his friend is more confusing and disorienting than anything. The messianic role of Jesus as Redeemer had left the general populace with mixed emotions, confusion, bewilderment, agitation. Because as Cleopas said, like, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So we, we move on to the scripture and Jesus becomes the interpreter. We learn, one, that Jesus is the ultimate authoritative interpreter of scripture, and just not in this instance, but really in, in, in all of scripture. Jesus can't be understood apart from Jewish scripture, from the Old Testament. And, and Jewish scripture can't, can't be understood apart from Jesus. They, they need one another. But apparently having Jesus himself, the one in whom all scripture finds its logical conclusion, teach you the scriptures for Cleopas and his friend, and, and he interprets the things about himself in all the scriptures. Apparently having Jesus do that himself, isn't enough because Jesus teaches all this and there's no immediate understanding and recognition. It doesn't, it doesn't come at that moment. And that's hard to even say for Jesus to interpret scripture himself is not enough. Like that's hard to say and hard to, hard to admit. It sounds blasphemous. Um, and there's, I feel like there's, there's a cautionary tale here in how we use Scripture to make sense of events in our lives. But I'll return to that at the end. So the story continues, and they end up at dinner with Jesus. Jesus reenacts the Last Supper. He takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, he gives it to them. Then, only then, were their eyes opened, and they recognized him. So there's something in that, that event. So apparently, interpretation of Scripture must also be a lived reality. Uh, Richard Hayes says, we do not gain a grasp of Scripture's significance solely through lectures on the text. We come to understand the death and resurrection of Jesus as we participate in the shared life of the community enacted in meals shared at the table. And he's summarizing, in that statement, he's summarizing another theologian who says christian understanding is inseparable from a certain kind of eucharistic lifestyle and practice it is to those who are willing to live and act as jesus did that the way jesus understands that the way jesus understood god in scripture is most likely to make sense and he intends the term eucharistic to refer not just to liturgical ceremonies but to a broad range of practices that are symbolically suggestive And so I believe what Jesus does in the breaking of the bread, this becomes a symbolically suggestive act, a symbolically suggestive practice of his uh, reenactment of of his suffering. This is the point that Cleopas and his friend were missing. This is what was missing from their expectations that the Messiah must suffer first before entering his glory. And so Jesus takes the bread... And breaks it. And I feel like that must have been, you know, he's reenacting Last Supper. I don't know if Cleopas and his friend were there at that dinner, but there's something about it, like, it's broken. Jesus was broken. He was wounded. He was pierced for our transgressions. He had to suffer before he would enter his glory. And and that's when their eyes were open. So again, what Hay says that, we must partic- interpretation comes through participating in the shared life of the community enacted in meals shared at the table you know sometimes what it takes is this uh, just a little piece of information to unlock a whole world of understanding and and clarity and recognition when I was before I met Christina um, i was I, I dated a girl for for almost three years, and I thought she was the one and was in my mind preparing for like proposal and trying to figure out what that might look like and engagement and right about the same time, I have this completely unexpected conversation where one conversation, the relationship is like over and i'm like, what just happened like i was I was heartbroken and I asked tons of questions, and, and I didn't gain clarity in that. And the girl I was dating at the time, one of her friends was, was, uh, had dated a, a good friend of mine. I think it was a year later, I was having a, a conversation with my friend, Adam, and I can't remember how it came up, but he said, you know, I don't know if I should tell you this, but then he proceeded to tell me about, this is what you know his girlfriend told him about, why things went down the way they did. And in that moment, I was like, like a, you know, the way the world was lifted off my shoulders, things clicked and made sense. I was like, that makes perfect sense. Like, why couldn't she tell me that then? It was just this, and, and I didn't realize how much it was weighing on me for an entire year until that little bit of information just unlocked the whole world and lifted the weight. And, uh, and thankfully in that moment, I was like, yes, things worked out. They should, that was not. You know, that was the way it was supposed to work out if, you know, if, if that was the case. And um, thankfully enough, but just to, you know, in redemption of that, I, I meet Christina. And, but it wasn't without its own uh, moments of uncertainty. I remember when I first told her, this is a terrifying moment in dating relationship. When you get to the point where you're, you're going you're gonna, to gonna declare your love for the first time, you're like, I'm going to put myself out there. And so I remember telling Christina for the first time, like, I love you, and expecting, my expectation was, oh, I love you too. Um, but the, the response was, uh, what do you mean by that? <laughs> oh, uh, well, here's what I mean by that. <laughs> Um, she knows I was going to tell that story, so I'm not throwing her under the bus, and she'll laugh at it, too. And if you know Christina, you know that's not a surprising question to come from her. I love you. What do you mean by that? (laughs) Um, So I had to wait, and then she left for, like, winter break, and she was in grad school, and the whole time I'm like, well, does she love me, too? (laughs) So I had to wait, like, a week for her to to come home and and finally get that reciprocated and some relief. (laughs) So there's... (laughs) We have these moments. There's another term for these times in our life when when our reality doesn't square with our expectations. Um, and it's called liminal liminal space. And the uh you know the what that literally means is a threshold, like a space of like in between, like betwixt and in between, neither here nor there. You've left the tried and true, but have not yet been able to replace it with with anything else like certain and firm. Um, It's it's a state of disequilibrium, often characterized by numbness, confusion, disorientation, sadness, brokenness, vulnerability, ambiguity, and anxiety. Um, But it can also be an incredibly sacred space. We're finally out of the way. We're between our old comfort zone and any possible new answer. It's not fun. Think of Israel in the desert, Joseph in the pit, Jonah in the belly, the disciples on Resurrection Sunday. Uh, in a way, it can feel like a captivity of sorts. And we earnestly, especially in our culture, even in our, this area, very academic, we earnestly seek explanations, not necessarily a true explanation, but any explanation that will free us from a cloud of unknowing and from a cloud of uncertainty. Like I said, it can, it can truly be a sacred space. You're not in control, not at the center. Something genu- genuinely new can happen. Um, as long as you're, you're capable of seeing something beyond self-interest. And true sacred space can allow significant transformation to emerge and to happen. It's difficult to stay in that threshold space. It's difficult to stay in a liminal state. Uh, Richard Rohr calls it a unique a unique place where all significant transformation happens, and sometimes it can just be described as a holy aimlessness. And now this theme kind of emerged in in reading the scripture for me. Before I knew this was a like a blessing and sending of graduates, and listening to some of the stories, there's it's. I get a sense that, that some, of, some of you are entering this space, like this world that you know that's tried and true, the routine and rhythm of, of school and seminary, church rhythms, uh, is coming to an end, and you're moving to something new that is not so certain yet. And there can be some anxiety and ambiguity and, and confusion and disorientation, and that's totally okay. Like, you don't need to come up with ready answers right away. And it's okay if you, it's okay to, to risk looking stupid or uncaring or unaware. It's okay when you're in that state. Um, our understanding will only come, like for, for Cleopas and his friend, understanding only dawns when these shattering events, their unmet expectations, are brought into some coherent interpretive framework. And you can't determine when that interpretive framework happens. Um, And I feel like it's so, I feel like we live in a sort of inception of liminal space, within liminal space, within liminal space in our life, between creation and new creation, between Jesus' first and second coming, between an inaugurated and consummated kingdom, the already not yet, we're in between but more close to home, between graduation and a new job and, and whatever the future is going to be, between engagement and wedding, between conception and birth, between, between school and job, between job and job. There's all sorts of liminal times and spaces in our life. And what can also be disheartening is there's not always a discrete event that marks the new normal. Sometimes it's just a, a gradual accepting of what new normal, like your life gets interrupted and uh, it just gradually becomes the new normal. And in a way, this is our own suffering. Uh, Suffering the unknown is hard. Ask William. And or ask graduates who are anxious to know what the future is going to hold, like, in, especially in our culture where we expect and sometimes even demand answers and, and explanations. But suffering is the most efficient means of transformation, and God makes full use of it whenever God can. And I think that's what happens in the resurrection, or in, with Cleopas on the journey, is he helps Cleopas and the other disciples fully understand that suffering was necessary for the Messiah to enter into his glory. It wasn't part of their original expectation, but it's part of the new reality, and they had to come to grips with that. So I mentioned uh, a, a cautionary tale, and I want to talk about what, you know, what about when we try to make sense of someone's suffering, or even our own suffering, or someone else tries to make sense of our suffering with Scripture? Have you ever done that? I mean, to only to be met with skepticism or outright contempt. You know, you're in a tough space, and someone says, you know, all good things happen for those who love God, and you really just want to react violently. Does anybody anybody relate? Or they just, people, you know, give you these cliche answers. They feel like they're trying to do the right thing. Um, Like, have you ever been in the midst of some sort of trouble or trial and your well intentioned friends or family or even strangers try to comfort you with scripture? And yeah, all you want to do is hit them. Um, Let me give you a bit of reassurance Moses faced the same thing. In Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter 6, he declares, after God tells him clearly, go tell the Israelites this is what's going to happen. He declared to captive Israel that he would be the one to liberate God's people and lead them out of slavery. God told, God told Moses what to say, and he said it. Like, you can't get any more direct. Like, that, I am the Lord, go tell my people this. Like scripture straight from, like from God through Moses. Uh, he spoke over Israel's God's direct Words, a proclamation that freedom is coming. I've heard your cries. I remember my covenant. I will deliver you and lead you to the promised land. I will take you for my people. I will be your God. A message of hope, right? And you know what? They didn't listen. It says they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel slavery. So they were in in, in a state of their own confusion and bewilderment and disorientation. And they were unable to even hear an encouraging word from God. Sometimes we aren't in a place to hear Scripture, much less find understanding and recognition of Jesus in the midst of our suffering. So, uh, one one word of advice is if it's you who is suffering this period, give, try to give yourself some grace and as we've learned, like, stay connected to a faithful community. It's like, Apparently, interpretation of Scripture is a lived reality. We can't rely just on, on Scripture alone, but in community and around table fellowship, bringing our suffering to that. Uh, if, if it's someone you know who is in the midst of suffering, and if it makes sense to relate the situation through Scripture, by all means go for it, if they're ready for that, if they're ready to hear it. Uh, but be sensitive. Have a little bit of emotional intelligence. If the other person is not in a place where they're ready to hear, in that case, maybe the best thing to do is what Job's friends did with him, and they sat with him in silence for seven days. Just be with them. Now, Moses, when his, when his uh, encouragement from God was met with uh, you know, doubt, when it wasn't heard, he didn't give up on them. He stayed present. He stayed with them when Jesus interpreted the scriptures and all things about himself to Cleopas and they didn't understand in that moment. One, I can't imagine the shock and disbelief that Jesus felt at that moment. Like, this is all about me. Like, I'm the one who just explained this to them and they still don't get it. He stayed with them and went and their recognition and understanding came through table fellowship and the breaking of the bread But that's, <laughs> that's that's the cautionary tale. Like there is a place for scripture in our lives and helping understand where we are in our lives and making sense of events. But sometimes it's just through silence and being in community and, and living out the like symbolically suggestive practices. You know, this story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus, uh, Emmaus uh, kind of precedes a similar narrative where uh, Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch further in Acts, who Luke also wrote, you know, wrote Acts. And, you know, he meets, Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch trying to understand scripture. So he's, he already knows he's trying to make sense of scripture, and he meets him where he's at and explains the scripture from that point. But they consummate that experience with a, it wasn't, it doesn't end with scripture interpretation. So the, it ends with the eunuch's baptism, which I feel is another symbolically suggestive practice that we engage in. It's a, it's a lived reality. We we participate in the, the death and resurrection to new life um, with Jesus through baptism. So I, I hope I think Oak does that well. We we try to engage in a shared, lived reality that helps us all make sense of scripture but also make sense of our lives. Um, and so I hope, it's my prayer and what, what I love about Oak is that, that Oak will always be that, that kind of place where people can come in their own liminal space in their own doubt and it's safe and they gain peace in the midst of that where God can really do transformative work So in in your liminal space, in the midst of confusion and disorientation, yes, lean on scripture to help make sense of things in your life. But moreover, stay connected to a healthy community of faith where you engage in table fellowship and bring your suffering to the table and enact symbolically suggestive practices that give you hope. Would you pray with me? God, thank you again for your word. Thank you that that you promise us the gift and you promise us the presence of your spirit. Uh, You're always with us. Uh, Would you help us be a community united in your spirit? Would you help us become a people who are uh, okay with vulnerability with one another and who can safely hold the vulnerability of others so that it's a safe and transformative experience. Help us to live out these, these practices that bring your scripture to life and make sense of our place in your story. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.